90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Uh, pretty well. Starting to freeze again, which is unfortunate, but... <laughs> yeah, and like we said on last week's show, we're recording this a little bit early, so if you sent in any kind of feedback, it will be a little bit late getting processed, but we'll get to it next week. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, because I, as I, this I, airs, I'm hopefully moving yeah. <laughs> into a house. <laughs> It'll be the first week of classes, so I'm not going to get to it, but after that. <laughs> right. <laughs> But we wanted to go back to a topic that uh, we're going to look at a specific site, talk a little bit about its history and some theories about how it formed. And this is a site that is near and dear to many science fiction fans' hearts. (laughs) It's the first thing I thought about when you wrote this, and it is Devil's Tower. Man, I remember how, like, creepy Close Encounters was, that movie, as a child. It still haunts me. Super scary. It's an amazing movie. It really is. I can't have a pile of mashed potatoes and not um, carve Devil's Tower out of it. Yes, and we'll put a, a link in the show notes if you've never seen the movie to yeah. <laughs> what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. But Devil's Tower is this big thing that sticks out of the ground, and we're going to talk a little bit about <laughs> how it might have got there. Um, so have you been there before? I I have not been there, but I have used it as an example for many things in mechanics and... Uh, just general geophysics classes because it's such a cool place. It is. So I went there um, several years ago. I've only been there once. Um, And it is. It's this big thing that sticks out out of the ground for miles and miles around. And it's in Wyoming, the southeast quarter of Wyoming. Um, And obviously the elevation is really high, but this thing is 2,000 feet above the surrounding land surface. And it's just this big, intrusive, igneous rock. So, okay, we should, we should take a step back right there <laughs> and, and start talking about intrusive and extrusive and how these kinds of igneous rocks differ and how we might know whether a rock was intruded or extruded. Right. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about enchanted rock, which was also a kind of intrusive igneous rock. And when you say intrusive and extrusive, this is sort of the first way that we categorize igneous rocks. And it has to do with where they're formed. And how can you tell whether they're formed? You can tell by their crystal size. So like the word implies, which isn't the case in geology all the time. Right. (laughs) Um, Intrusive igneous rocks are intruded into surrounding rock. This all happens subsurface. And because of that, uh, they get to cool very slowly. And when they cool slowly, they grow big crystals. Right. So a common activity that we do as students to show intrusive like a a volcanic dike intrusion is we make these little jello volcanoes and give them a syringe of red warm jello and they stick the syringe in and press down on the plunger and you see the volcano the rock or the jello that makes up the volcano fracture and this intrusive body get injected inside right exactly and just because of you know geothermal Uh, gradients and stuff, these intrusives get to cool slowly. Obviously, if they're closer to the surface, they're going to cool faster than if they're a couple of kilometers down. Both of those things happen. Right. And I mean, rock is not all that thermally conductive. Right. So it's kind of like wrapping your intrusive baby rock in a big blanket. (laughs) A Yeti cooler was what I was thinking. But yeah, same thing. Yeah. (laughs) And so conversely, extrusives get extruded out onto the surface and since the atmosphere is very cold um 
they, especially right now, uh, <laughs> they cool very fast. And so they have super tiny crystals. I mean, some even microscopic, like an obsidian. You can't even see crystals. Um, so that's the difference. It's fair. Well, I'd like to say it's fairly easy. But obviously, you can always get a mix of these two things. <laughs> and that is where xenoliths come in, which are weird. Oh, they're their own drops. show. They're so cool. <laughs> right. And we won't say anything more than if you can imagine you've got some magma that's going to erupt onto the surface and a chunk of intruded rock breaks off the wall of the magma chamber, let's say, falls into the lava and then gets shot out the top, extruded. Mm -hmm. Before that little chunk of rock can totally melt, you're going to have a chunk of intruded rock embedded inside an extruded rock. Yeah. That's a xenolith. Yeah. <laughs> and they're pretty because these things can shoot from like kilometers down so you get awesome sort of mantle you can even get mantle xenoliths which are beautiful right but that's but like all. you said that's another <laughs> show <laughs> exactly so back to devil's tower so we just said it is this big intrusive igneous rock so obviously it didn't form where it's at now because it's at the surface right right yeah um what kind of igneous rock no one cares about this probably it is a phonolite porphyry sounds like an appetizer <laughs> <laughs> and delicious it is. Um, <laughs> so a phonolite, the first word there, it just has to do with what is it made out of. And so a phonolite has alkali feldspar and nepheline, which those things are very hard to tell apart when you're looking at them in hand sample. This is something that, you know, you've got to get this under a microscope to tell the, the different, we talked about crystals, um, to tell the different crystal structures there. Um but the second word, porphyry, is the sort of more important one. That's the textural one. And a porphyry is just a, an igneous rock that has two different crystal sizes. So you have both large and small crystals in it. Right. And so you have maybe larger feldspar crystals and this really dark gray kind of a... I would, I would call it a matrix, but that's the wrong word for igneous rock. Well, I mean, it's not. You can use matrix, but it's not tiny enough to be... Well... Probably it is in some cases. This is where I'm a sedimentologist, and I don't care beyond this. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a dark gray rock. There you go. <laughs> it uh, sounds like the windstone definition from last week. Right. That is exactly, that's exactly where I'm going to go with it. I mean, and there are lots <laughs> of cool, we've been focusing on intrusives. I think they're neat. There's lots of cool extrusives, little geology pun there as well. Um, <laughs> but we'll get to those. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah. so Devil's Tower, this mm -hmm. was a, a really early monument. It's right when the Antiquities Act was passed, which we talked about on our National Park show. Right, exactly. So this is actually the first uh, national monument. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, differences between national monuments and national parks and all that jazz. And we put a link in the show notes to where you can uh, read about this. But Devil's Tower was one of the first. And it's such an interesting place. And it just goes back to the whole interesting geologic places are also generally sacred places to the people the indigenous people that have lived around there and devil's tower is no different um just because we said it's it's all like rolling prairie around there i mean there's some forest and stuff but it's really rolling prairie and then this huge thing that's you know rises 1200 feet i think i said more than that earlier 1200 feet above the ground from all directions and you see it forever while you're coming up to it 
Right. And what's cool about it is it's this big monolithic thing that's attracted attention for ages and we're still arguing about why it's there. <laughs> I love this. Like, I don't think when I first heard about Devil's Tower when I was little, I don't think I believed that we didn't know what it was. And we still don't. I, I thought that when I was, you know, reference, or, uh, researching this show that I would be like, I'd find something that said, oh, no, this is what it really is. This controversy is put to bed. But it's not. No, and that is one of the cool things that I think we need to emphasize maybe more early on in science education, yes. is that we don't know everything, and it's okay not to. <laughs> I will caution against saying this too much, because I have been questioned in my intro geology class, do we even know anything about anything? <laughs> so, well, I mean, yeah and no. Yeah. <laughs> I can lie to you about what this is, but, you know, there's still... It's absolutely true. There's still some question, but that's also the fun part of science, too. Right. And part of what makes this problem hard is we say, well, we'll look at the rocks around it and see what they can tell us. You can't. <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, so when it was first described in the literature back in the 1800s, you know, what do we know? Well, we know it's igneous. Like, there's no question about that. And it's probably an intrusion because you see large crystals, so we know that at least part of it cooled underground because you're not going to get large crystals at the surface. It just doesn't right. happen. Um, but what type and how old? And just like John just said, you can't look at the surrounding rocks because they're all sedimentary rocks that are really old, Triassic in age, actually. Yeah, so that's 195 to 100 million years ago. Right. Whereas Devil's Tower itself is only 50 to 60 million years ago. So there's a, a good 50 to 150 million year yeah. gap. Yeah. Exactly. So all its little surrounding rocks are these sedimentary rocks, and it's this big thing that's a lot younger than that, um, which just like uh, if you're thinking about this jello volcano, you know, you're intruding a rock into rocks that are already there. So the first thought saying that is that Devil's Tower was a lacolith, which I love that word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> lacolith is a fun word, but it just means uh, an intrusion that is, and this is the scientific term for it, mushroom-shaped. Right, exactly. Uh, that it, it gets intruded, so it squeezes up into these sedimentary rock layers, and it forms this mushroom top and does some interesting things to the surrounding topography. Right, and so it, between sedimentary layers. So sedimentary rocks are laid down flat, right, and it's just like layers in a layer cake, and these haven't been tilted or anything. And so when you intrude all this hot, igneous stuff in there, you know, it kind of spreads out in between the layers, and bulges up the rest of the surrounding rock. And, well, this one didn't really bulge up a lot of the rock. So Right. And it also doesn't really look like a lacolith. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of lacoliths in the southwest of that age. So you would imagine that the processes would sort of be similar. And simply because it doesn't look like it, well, then it probably isn't exactly a lacolith. Right. And I don't really know of anything that looks exactly like it. It's just yeah. so distinctive. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Which is probably due to erosion, but we'll get to that. <laughs> right. Um, so this is the thing that I thought it always was. This is what I was taught that it was. This is what I've always thought of it as and explained it as, is of a, is the Devil's Tower itself is a volcanic neck. And that's the same explanation that I had heard forever as well. Right. Which makes sense. I mean, it looks like a 
a volcano. We're not talking about the actual tower isn't all of the volcano. It's the basically the magma that was inside the volcano in the neck getting ready to explode. It's that, but that's been cooled. And then the mountain got eroded away around it. Exactly. Um, and so that's how I always explained it. It's how I look at it. It's what it looks like. It's shaped like, right? Um, right. Because it's kind of, you know, wider at the at the base and then it kind of tapers to the top. You can easily imagine a volcano stuck on top of that. Um, but there's also a problem with that. Yeah, where's the lava? Yeah, there's and no the ash and <laughs> all <laughs> this all the stuff that goes with volcanoes isn't anywhere around there. And I actually don't see a huge problem with this because it could just be all eroded away. My problem with that is okay, we're saying that sedimentary rock eroded around the volcanic neck mm-hmm. because it's easier to erode than the igneous. Right. So why is the lava gone too? Granted, it was a it was a much thinner layer, so it would take less time. But I I have a hard time seeing that as a a great explanation. See, and I imagine that maybe there was never any lava; it was all just magma. It wasn't something that actually erupted. Hmm. Okay. Ma- maybe it spewed out like some ash and some tuff, which is easily erodible, right? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Just a thought. No, that's, I mean, this is this is why people are still arguing about it. It's because we can come up with hypotheticals. <laughs> right, all day long. Um, all day. But this, and this is the interesting thing, and the frustrating thing about sedimentary rocks or just geomorphology in general is what has erosion taken away? Is it stuff erosion's taken away? Like this ash or this tuff or even small amounts of lava? Or is it stuff that was never there in the first place? Right. That is a nigh impossible question to answer. <laughs> and so that's the the curse of the stratigraphers and sedimentologists is trying to figure out that exact question. Right. And this is somewhere where I think maybe geophysics could maybe yield some insight. I mean, we can't bring rock back that's not there, but we can look at deeper structures. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much geophysics has been done. That's something that I'd like to research, maybe for another show. Even yeah, I don't. I don't actually know either. Um, that would be interesting. But there is one more idea that is popular and seems to be the most popular right now. Right, and I mean, this is yeah the going thought, and there's some really good graphics of this on the National Park Service website. Is that this is a stock? Okay. What's okay, so <laughs> I, that, that sounds a lot like a cross between a neck and a lacolith. Um, I mean, sort of. Um, now, this is stock, S-T-O-C-K, but the actual shape evokes stock like a beanstalk or something in my mind. And it's just a vertical intrusion. It never reaches the surface. Um, to me, these stocks are often associated with ore deposits. Because they're these sort of skinny, I imagine them as happening really quickly, like they get intruded really quickly, because they're often associated with really intense hydrothermal systems. Right, and that does enrich a lot of things that we want to mine. Right, exactly. So almost all these mines in the southwest are associated with these volcanics, and it just, they come up and they do all kinds of, you know, boiling and which is an actual term when you're talking about ore rocks. And they go out into the country rock and they really hydrothermally screw it up, like this really hot water and stuff. 
melts the rocks, does all kinds of crazy stuff, and you get concentrations of silver and copper in these areas quite frequently. So I don't know if there's any alteration in these sedimentary rocks associated with Devil's Tower. Yeah, I don't know either, Because I don't think there is. So, but there has to be somewhere, because right? we can all agree <laughs> that this is an igneous body that intruded at some time into something. Correct. So, so you... did everything that got baked get washed away? Yeah. See, this is what I don't know. I don't know if there have ever been any cores taken around there or anything. I don't know. And I would imagine it might be hard to get permission to do that. I think that is part of it, too. That is a large part of it as well. So so that's interesting. But that's sort of the going thing. It's just that it's this stock. It's this vertical intrusion. Maybe it happened a lot slower. Maybe that's why you don't have all the alteration. I don't know. Yeah, and... I mean, it is, I think, maybe one misconception that people have is that it's always easy to go get samples or get permission to core because, unfortunately, there's no geologist badge where you can walk into the national park and, you know, it's okay. I'm a geologist. And (laughs) you can take samples or do cores. In fact, national parks are kind of hard to do field work in because they want to preserve the park. That's why it's there. Right. Exactly. I mean, there's always... You know, you can always contact people and get permission, and especially some of the most more remote areas of a lot of the parks. But they don't necessarily want you doing that, and that's fine. I mean, that's it's there to be protected. So, right. So exactly. So that's a hard question to answer, and I mean, I'm sure more research on either of our parts could yield a little bit more insights. But it's interesting that we just still don't know. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Devil's Tower has some really cool uh, fracture features. As yeah. well. Yeah, they, it really does. Um, so this thing, we know it's underground. Like, we all agree on that, right? That's not, that's not a thing. And we think that it was in place about 50 million years ago. We're pretty good right. at dating igneous rocks. Um, so that's all right. But we think that the erosion, because this is a big deal in this area, when was stuff uplifted, when did erosion happen, is only relatively recently. And that's why Devil's Tower looks as sort of fresh as it does. Right. So only in the last couple of years, or a couple of years, <laughs> a couple of years, geologically speaking, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. a couple million years is when this has been uncovered. And the coolest feature are these columnar joints that are all throughout the tower. And so these look like generally hexagonal, though they can be up to 12 sided mm-hmm. uh, posts of rock. Mm-hmm. They look perfectly cut. Yeah. But they're naturally forming. Yes. (laughs) Um, So this isn't unique to Devil's Tower. There's, but it's one of its defining features. It would be a really interesting, awesome monolith, despite if it didn't have columnar jointing. But this makes it even cooler. (laughs) Right. And so columnar jointing is due to this cooling process, right? Right. Um, so you got hot rock, right? Takes up a lot of space, starts to cool down as it cools down. It's not taking as much space and these joints form due to contraction during cooling. So if you're thinking about it as a stock, so as this little vertical intrusive, or even in the neck of of a volcano, as it starts to cool down, the rocks start to contract. And then this is where you come in. (laughs) 
(laughs) Because there's all sorts of things about um, where these fractures are going to form. Right. So as you get this contraction, you're creating a a tension inside the rock. And because of a number of crystallographic and mechanical things, uh, it's very common to get three cracks that originate at a common center that are 120 degrees apart. And as these three cracks that are 120 degrees apart propagate from many centers, they intersect and they form these hexagonal columns. That's so cool. And what's really cool about this is the first paper that proposed the correct mechanism for this is Mallet 1875. Oh, wow. Followed by Ittings, 1886 and 1909, and then Spry, 1962. That is awesome. Were they empirical studies? I believe so. I believe Mallet's was a, because that's before a lot of fracture mechanics was nailed down. Mm-hmm. Remember, we didn't know about Griffith defects until yeah. the 1920s, well, and this is 1875. Uh, so, <laughs> but I really love, people were still trying different models in their heads. And there's one that Watts came up with in 1804 that makes perfect sense. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to quote. Molten magma solidified around a series of isolated centers to form large plastic balls, which when pressed together give the typical hexagonal (laughs) symmetry. (laughs) I like it. So think about, or if you've got, you know, silly putty, Play-Doh, whatever like that, form five or six little balls of it. Pack them as close as you can Mm -hmm. so you know with those staggered layers. Mm Mm-hmm. And then press it together. Yeah, that's what it's going to do. You get hexagonal symmetry. That's awesome. It's a beautiful explanation. It really with is. no data from 1804. <laughs> um, and obviously the problem is those are some really long, really long spheres. You know what I mean? Yeah, but if, if you imagine that you had these plastic balls that were a kilometer in diameter and you yeah. squeeze them down to a column that's eight inches across. Yeah, I guess so. Hmm. But there's another model. That is after the correct cooling model was proposed. This was in 19, or 1916 okay. by Sossman. Okay. And I love this because it's, <laughs> it's fluid dynamically elegant. <laughs> Have you ever seen when you boil water or boil fluids that you get hexagonal convection cells? Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have in the show notes that I want to do a whole show on this mm-hmm. because getting mm-hmm. hexagonal symmetry in a boiling fluid is super cool Uh, yes it's like it reminds the hexagonal um clouds that are on the poles of saturn right yeah and yeah so this is called rayleigh bernard convection ah and those are famous names in fluid dynamics yes yeah exactly Uh, (laughs) anyway so sossman did experiments uh with wax and oil in a flat dish and heated it and said, this is like magma. We have this thick, okay. viscous mm-hmm. fluid, and we're heating it. Uh, and there you go. But the main problem with that is that the convection cells didn't quite match the hexagonal columns in form. And he was heating from the bottom, whereas these emplaced lavas were cooling from the top. Right, right. That's but still, two ideas man, that are yeah. really cool. Yeah, they are. The squishing them together. That's that's fantastic. 1804, huh? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's beautifully simple. That is beautifully simple. But then you got to take into account how some of them aren't hexagonal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Then you have, I mean, and the most common is six, but like I said, they can be up to 12 and I think they can be down to pretty much square. Yeah. Yes, they are. Uh, I have a pentagonal one that I lugged out of somewhere. Not Devil's Tower, so don't send hate mail. <laughs> um, it was right. somewhere else in the Southwest that was perfectly okay to collect them. Um, and I lugged this 50-pound one, and then I get it down, and I look at it, and I was like, man, it's not even a hexagon. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. It was still cool. And so that happens because of these you know, defects in the crystallographic structures. Right. So that's... That's really cool. Devil's Tower has this. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's not unique to there. Like you said, there are places uh, also named like Devil's Post Pile. Mm-hmm. And that's in California. Giant's Causeway in Ireland. Uh, I think there are a few others, right? Oh, yeah. There's tons of and, and like I said, all throughout the Southwest and New Mexico and everything where there's a lot of volcanics of this age. Not that that matters, but relatively young volcanics. You'll see these um, hexagonal cooling patterns all over the place just not in such a large scale as you do at say devil's tower or the giant's causeway right but i thought it was interesting that you know devil's tower devil's post pile yeah like you said these have some connections to uh spirituality superstition whatever you want to call it right right this is a really great i mean there are so many great enchanted rock was one of them too um but devil's tower is a really great place to talk about the intersection of sort of these the sacredness to an indigenous community because of this very unique geologic feature and then also sacredness sort of to scientists and i say sacred and i'm not throwing that around but it's true because this is a really strange place we still can't agree on how it even formed right and so these sacred places for indigenous people are very interesting places for scientists as well um this is a really big rock climbing locality for cragging because of the columnar joining. Um, and so, I mean, you can even say something as much as it's a sacred place for rock climbers as well. So it's an interesting intersection of a lot of different um, ideas and backgrounds that comes together at Devil's Tower, which if you go into watching Close Encounters with that thought, <laughs> it's even more interesting. <laughs> It, it really is, and that's like, like I said, that movie has so many places in in my life yes. from you know the five tone sequence right uh, yeah. mm-hmm. to seeing this famous feature in mashed potatoes. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's it's a really cool place. I talk about it all the time in my native science class when we're talking about igneous rocks, just because it is so unique in that area. And there are so many indigenous tribes in that area. I mean, over 20, just sort of in the surrounding locations, everyone has a story about how it formed, which is almost more than we can say for Western science. (laughs) It's true. So (laughs) what are some of these stories or what do some people think about this? Uh, So no, I was always told this story when I was little, which is kind of cool because I didn't really even know where it came from. Right. But um, my dad would tell me the story about how it was formed. And it has to do with the Pleiades, which is the star cluster. Right. Most people know it as the Seven Sisters. Right. And a bear. And I found out that this was actually a Kiowa story, which the Kiowa people were nomadic through uh, the Plains states. Now they're in Oklahoma. So maybe that's why this is a story I got. Um, 
but it is called, the Kiowa call it tree rock or so ah because of this. And it has to do with seven sisters that were out playing sort of past the village and all these bears came out. There's a lot of bears in Wyoming. This is not unusual. And they were coming to attack the sisters and the sisters kneeled down and prayed to mother earth to save them from the bear. And so what mother earth does is she raises up the little piece of ground that the seven sisters are praying on. And as the ground is raising up, the bears reach up to grab them and the columnar jointing is the result of the bear's claws clawing at the ground that's raising up to try to get to the girls. And Mother Earth raises it up so high that she raises the girls up to Father Sky. And that's where you can see the Pleiades, the seven sisters that are right above Devil's Tower in the wintertime. That's a cool story. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. Uh, that, that's always the one I'd heard. And it was cool when we went to Devil's Tower because there's uh, some paintings there in the visitor center of that story. And I got really excited. <laughs> and you, wow. they're on the, we've linked them in here, um, on the website. The National Parks website, too, has those exact pictures of the paintings of the bears. And there's always a, many of the stories, um, like the Arapaho story about how Devil's Tower was made. It's called the Bear's Teepee. So many of them have to do with bears. I guess just the claw. I mean, you can imagine the claw of marks. That's what the columnar joining looks like. And that's, like, the big predator of the area, so... Right. Well, I mean, well, in you know, in the movie, when the guy is forming his mashed potatoes into Devil's Tower, he's using a fork, yeah. and the tines on the fork make a pretty good representation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, it's uh, well, that's yeah. really cool. Mm-hmm. I thought so too. And doing the show, I definitely learned a couple things about Devil's Tower that I didn't know and want to actually make a visit up there now. Right. Um. And, and when you try to. These are cool stories about how it formed, but what does that have to do with, you know, Western science? Well, it has everything to do. It's the same emplacement mechanism. You know, they have this weird rock that looks nothing like the surrounding rock rising up, right? It originates from somewhere deep below. And almost all of them, all the stories, have that sort of lesson in it. So it's describing the geological process, just not in geological terms. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, add it to the list of places to go. Yes, so. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that brings us to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> that bear bell was obviously in honor of the bear's Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so y- you found this fun paper, and uh, yeah, it's it's... Straight out of Mythbusters. <laughs> it is. I really want to see it done. I'm really sad that there aren't videos from this paper. Well, the Mythbusters did do this myth. Oh, they did? Yes. Oh, you meant for real, straight out of Mythbusters. Oh. Yes, I, I did. They okay. they built, uh, well, I guess we should tell people what the myth is <gasps> Yeah, first. I guess so. All right. <laughs> so the actual paper um, is, Will Humans Swim Faster or Slower in Syrup? And it's by Gettlefinger and Cussler. And that's it. It's about can you swim faster or slower in syrup? What are the properties of syrup versus water? And how's that going to affect swimming? Right. So another elegant fluid dynamics. (laughs) Actually, it doesn't sound very elegant. Swimming in syrup. Swimming in goo. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so this is uh, an episode of Mythbusters Swimming in Syrup, which aired May 6, 2009. Oh, man. Okay. Well. Yeah, so I'll put a link to the YouTube part of that clip, and you can watch them swim in the stuff that it looks disgusting. <laughs> it does So do they do... In the paper, they put in guar into they run like pool water through this guar solution because they didn't want to put anything any uh more viscous to glob up the actual pool works what do they use in mythbusters uh, i don't remember exactly what they use but it was something similar okay. so they get it to the viscosity of syrup okay all right which uh, is sort of what they do here sort of what they do there right but uh, anyway the you know, they comment in the, the popular the nature write-up of this article that uh, this looked like snot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it said specifically there was no more elegant way to put it. <laughs> yes. And, you know, in the paper, they actually, like you said, they filled a swimming pool with this stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> in Mythbusters, they built a long, narrow trough okay. and filled it with this. But the they said that the hardest part of the study was that they had to get over 22 kinds, separate kinds of approval, including permission to put this down the drain. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. It's so great. I love how they started out, um, the authors write, when one of us was training in the U.S. Olympic trials, <laughs> they began to discuss the fluid mechanics of swimming. <laughs> right. And so that was the whole, it just started as this argument, right? Are you going to swim faster or slower if your right. fluid is more viscous than water? And they said that in salt water, they know that they're going to swim faster because they're more buoyant. Mm-hmm. But in syrup, yeah, there's more drag. But if you think about it, it's also a thicker fluid. Mm-hmm. So if you stick your hand in it and pull, you're going to generate more thrust force. Right. And so that's what you're doing with swimming. Right? Right. Yeah. I mean, not me. I'm not a very good swimmer, so... I'm more flop around, but exactly. So that's the point is, you know, competitive swimmers or whatever it has to do with how, your arm strength. And so if you're going to be able to pull faster, then how is that going to change? And it was interesting because they used 10 competitive swimmers and then six recreational swimmers to do this. Um, right. And so they timed them in water and timed them in syrup mm-hmm. to see what the difference would be and if it was systematic. Right. And they tried to take out all the other things they did they weren't in the water together you know they all swam in the same exact lane it was a quiet quiet water or quiet syrup i guess right <laughs> when they came through here but the findings were pretty awesome yeah and the findings were yeah, it doesn't make a difference yeah not at all mm-hmm. no it's it is random whether you would do any better or worse in water or syrup mm-hmm. uh, and the difference was tiny yeah, and, you know, they had a lot of data on the professional or the uh, competitive swimmers, obviously, and so all the variations within that group were normal variations that are recorded in their normal workouts. So there's no variation at all between swimming in water or syrup. Right, and so the extra thrust cancels the drag. What's more important is when you do that uh, – the thrust cancels the excess drag. What you're left with is kind of this, uh, it's a body drag that's based on the shape. Right. Right. So if you're a narrow projectile, like a person, (laughs) 
uh, then you will probably have a pretty low body drag. Whereas if something with a wide aspect ratio or something very small mm-hmm. tried to do this, then they would indeed be slower in syrup. Right. But not us. Not us. And, you know, it's interesting that they said if they'd done this with something like microbes, mm-hmm. it would have indeed been different. Yes. And this question, I, I'm not going to say the question of would you swim slower or faster in syrup, but the question of at what size and aspect ratio does the thrust drag trade-off become a wash mm-hmm. has gone back for, well, a long time, actually, to the 17th century. Right. Um, because they say this is a a long-standing, um, a long-standing sort of fight. Uh, Isaac Newton and Huygens, right, Christian Huygens, argued back over it around the time Newton was writing the Principia Mathematica. Right. So Newton said that the object's speed would not depend on its viscosity. Mm-hmm. And uh, Huygens said it would not. Right. So <laughs> in classic fashion, when Newton wrote the Principia, he included both. <laughs> it's great. It's not yes, a cop and, at all. <laughs> well, I mean, you think about this now, and we talk about Newtonian and non-Newtonian fluids. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Which is what your syrup is going to approximate. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fluid dynamics, that's where it's at. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's the story of this paper. <laughs> it's the story of our lives in meteorology. And in geology. Yeah, that is true. Just different timescales. Yep, and this is a nice uh, short paper. It's just a couple of pages. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we will link it and the Nature article talking about it and the Mythbusters video all in the show notes for your enjoyment. <laughs> but if you would like to send us a fun paper to discuss or topic for the show or some feedback, we would love to hear from you. We've got uh, more feedback that we're going to be addressing here pretty soon with some more shows because we've had some really great suggestions recently so shannon how can they get a hold of us and tell us these wonderful things yeah we really love your suggestions for shows because it helps us out a lot um (laughs) so keep them coming in show at don'tpanicgeocast.com uh you can always shoot us interesting things on twitter uh we are at don'tpanicgeo john is at geo underscore lehman I'm at Shannon Doolin or in the Swung uh, chat room on Slack. And we're on the Don't Panic channel, uh, swung.rocks. Right. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 